Hey, nerds. You know, right after I finished reading Special Counsel Jack Smith's petition for a writ of certiorari before judgment and the accompanying motion to expedite, the Supreme Court announced that they agreed to hear oral arguments in a case that could affect the criminal charges against Donald Trump in the January 6th case, even if the court ends up ruling that he is not immune from prosecution. The case they agreed to hear is Fisher v. United States, in which the defendant and petitioner, Joseph Fisher, was charged with crimes relating to his participation at the Capitol on January 6th, including obstruction of a congressional proceeding. But Fisher says that he was only in the Capitol for a short period of time, and besides, the law in question here, 18 U.S.C. Section 1512, passed in the wake of the Enron scandal, was intended to apply to informant and evidence tampering related to congressional investigations, rather than someone who committed disorderly conduct in the Capitol building in person, even if that conduct was intended to physically stop a congressional proceeding. The district court agreed with Fisher, but the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit reversed and reinstated the charges against Fisher and the other men charged with him, holding that the statute clearly applies to all forms of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, and not just the evidence tampering provision. So, I know that a few episodes ago, I told you that I was planning to read Nixon v. United States next for a little background on presidential immunity against crimes. But after I heard that the court agreed to hear this case only about two days after Jack Smith's filings, I was immediately interested in reading the briefs in this case. And I thought to myself, if I'm interested, my fellow nerds would be interested in hearing them too. So that's what I'm doing. I'm going to read the respondent's petition first and then the reply brief. I hope you're all in. Here is Fisher v. United States Petition for a Writ of Certiorari, filed September 11, 2023, and granted December 13, 2023. Constitutional Provisions United States Constitution, Amendment 1 Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. United States Constitution, Amendment 5 No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. 
Statutory Provision 18 U.S.C. Section 1512 C.2 Tampering with a witness, victim, or an informant C. Whoever corruptly 1. Alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding or 2. Otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Introduction The D.C. Circuit's interpretation of the anti-shredding provisions of the Corporate Fraud and Accountability Act of 2002, 18 U.S.C. Section 1512 C.2, presents an important question of federal law affecting hundreds of prosecutions arising from January 6th, including the prosecution of former President Donald Trump. The D.C. Circuit's opinion conflicts with this court's precedent, diverges from the construction of Section 1512C by other courts of appeal, and results, as Judge Katsas observed, in an implausibly broad provision that is unconstitutional in many applications. Statement of the Case A. Factual Background Spurred by President Trump's urging, Petitioner Joseph W. Fisher and a companion attended the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th at the Ellipse. Unlike many of the other attendees, Mr. Fisher did not subsequently march with the crowd to the Capitol. Instead, he and his companion headed home. But after learning of the swelling demonstration, Mr. Fisher and his companion drove back to Washington, D.C. Mr. Fisher was not part of the mob that forced the electoral certification to stop. He arrived at the Capitol grounds well after Congress recessed, and as Mr. Fisher walked toward the east side of the building, no barricades or fences impeded him. He ultimately entered the Capitol around 3.25 p.m. Police video captures Mr. Fisher's conduct inside the building. It reveals, for example, that he pushed his way through the crowd to about 20 feet inside the building. But as he neared the police line, the swell of the crowd then knocked Mr. Fisher to the ground. Returning to his feet, Mr. Fisher returned lost equipment, a pair of handcuffs, to a Capitol police officer. He talked with an officer, patting him on the shoulder. Then the weight of the crowd pushed Mr. Fisher into the police line. With that, the Capitol police pepper sprayed the protesters, blinding Mr. Fisher. He exited four minutes after entering. Section B. The Charges and the District Court's Decision on the Scope of Section 1512C2. A grand jury returned a seven-count indictment. The indictment charged Mr. Fisher with several specific offenses. Civil disorder, 18 U.S.C. Section 
A3, Count 1, Assaulting, Resisting, or Impeding Certain Officers, 18 U.S.C. Section 111A1 and 2, Count 2, Entering and Remaining in a Restricted Building or Grounds, 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A1, Count 4, Disorderly Conduct in a Restricted Building, 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A2, Count 5, Disorderly Conduct in a Capitol Building, 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2D, Count 6, and Parading, Demonstrating, or Picketing in a Capitol Building, 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E3G, Count 7. However, as in so many other cases like Mr. Fisher's, the government also charged a violation of Section 1512C, Count 3, which prohibits evidence impairment in connection with, among other things, a proceeding before the Congress. Judge Nichols granted Mr. Fisher's motion to dismiss the Section 1512C count based on his opinion in United States v. Miller. In Miller, Judge Nichols construed Section 1512C based on its language, structure, history, and the relevant interpretive canons. At the outset, he emphasized that the court must exercise restraint in assessing the reach of a criminal statute. As for the reach of Section 1512C, Judge Nichols began by pointing out that three readings of the statute are possible, but only two are plausible. The first, advanced by the government, was that subsection C2, which begins with the term otherwise and then states, obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, constitutes a clean break from subsection C1, setting forth an omnibus clause independent of the preceding subsection. But Judge Nichols identified several problems with the government's interpretation. One, it ignored that, otherwise, has several different definitions that imply a relationship with something else. Two, it failed to give meaning to the term otherwise rendering it surplusage. 3. The government's interpretation conflicted with how this court had construed otherwise in Begay v. United States 2008, abrogated on other grounds by Johnson v. United States 2015, which addressed a different statute but a similar framework. While acknowledging that other courts had interpreted subsection C2 consistent with the government's position. Judge Nichols viewed this authority as conflicting with this court's reasoning. Next, he addressed whether subsection C1 merely provides examples of conduct that violate subsection C2. Judge Nichols acknowledged that this construction gave effect to the term otherwise by tethering the subsections through a common link to an official proceeding but he found that this construction had its own problems. For example, if the common element is an official proceeding, then otherwise is superfluous. 
and both subsections reference official proceedings. Judge Nichols explained that the structure of Section 1512C cut against construing subsection C1 as merely including examples of conduct violating C2. In his view, a reasonable reader would not expect the principal or only offense to be in the second subsection. Finally, Judge Nichols considered whether subsection C2 constituted a residual clause for C1. Under this construction, the word otherwise links the two subsections with the commonality being the conduct proscribed in C1, and it squared with this court's reasoning and holding in Begay. For instance, subsection C2 ensures that by criminalizing specific acts in C1 that impair evidence. Congress was not under-inclusive in proscribing interference with the availability and integrity of all types of evidence. Turning to statutory context, Judge Nichols viewed it as supporting a narrow focus in subsection C2. For instance, he noted that Congress aimed section 1512's other subsections at discrete conduct in narrow circumstances, like killing a person to prevent their attendance at an official proceeding and the title of the section further suggests a narrow evidentiary focus. Absent such focus, Judge Nichols emphasized that a broad reading would cause substantial superfluity problems. In other words, the majority of Section 1512 would be unnecessary. Looking next to the statutory history, Judge Nichols found that it too reinforced construing subsection C2 as limited to the types of actions described in C1. On this point, he traced the development of Section 1512C and observed that it filled a gap, that is, not requiring that the obstructor act through another person. Last, Judge Nichols recounted the history surrounding Section 1512C's enactment as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 emphasizing Congress's focus on deterring fraud and abuse by corporate executives. Section 1512C followed the notorious cases of Enron and Arthur Anderson LLP, where documents were shredded to stymie an investigation. In other words, federal authorities could prosecute individuals under Section 1512C when they had acted alone and before the existence of a proceeding and a subpoena. C. The Appeal 1. The Lead Opinion Judge Pan conceded that there was no precedent for applying Section 1512C to conduct unrelated to evidence impairment, and that such application was beyond Congress's expressed purpose in amending that section. Yet Judge Pan viewed the terms in Section 1512C2 describing the actus reus to be clear, unambiguous, and supporting a broad reading. And absent a grievous ambiguity, Judge Pan did not believe the rule of lenity had any role to play. As to the government's argument that the mens rea of corruptly limited the statutory reach, Judge Pan demurred. Because the assault allegations, in her view, 
satisfied any mens rea standard, Judge Pan did not reach the issue, and she offered that the definition adopted in Judge Walker's concurrence should, for the same reasons, await briefing in a different case. Finally, Judge Pan emphasized that the concurring opinion warranted no precedential effect. 2. The Conditional Concurrence Judge Walker concurred because the lead opinion's rationale was not enough to uphold the indictments in the absence of a definition of the mens rea element. Judge Walker repeatedly characterized the government's construction of Section 1512C2's act and mental state as breathtaking in scope, subjecting it to vagueness and overbreadth concerns. Judge Walker reasoned that the most efficient way to narrow the lead opinion's construction was through the mens rea element, corruptly. Judge Walker explained that narrowing the mens rea makes sense of subsection C2's placement within the statutory scheme. Finally, Judge Walker emphasized the conditional nature of his concurrence. 3. The Dissenting Opinion Judge Katsis concluded that both the government and the lead opinion dubiously read the term otherwise in section 1512c2 to mean in a different manner, as opposed to in a manner like the list in subsection c1. Such reading, Judge Katsis explained, rendered subsection c1 ineffective, and it made section 1512c implausibly broad and unconstitutional in many applications. Instead, Judge Katsis relied on normal linguistic usage that the verbs preceding, otherwise, help frame and narrow its meaning. This usage adheres to textualism's goal, that is, not to explore definitional possibilities, but to assess how an ordinary person would understand the phrases Congress strung together. Judge Katsis also explained that the canons of statutory instruction include avoiding surplusage by giving effect to every clause and word. Another canon, eusdem generis, cautions that when general words follow specific ones, the general words are construed as embracing only objects like those enumerated. Similarly, the canon of nocitur associus provides that a word is given precise content by the neighboring words with which it is associated. Here, otherwise takes meaning from the specific examples preceding it. As Judge Katsis recognized, the expansive interpretation advanced by the government and adopted in the lead opinion would swallow up various other Chapter 73 offenses outside of subsection 1512. Judge Katsis next noted that the statutory history surrounding section 1512 and its application in the courts went against the lead opinion's unprecedented expansion of its reach. Given the ambiguity surrounding the statutory reach and unconstitutional breadth, Judge Katsis believed that the rule of lenity applied. Finally, as for the approach suggested in the concurrence, 
Judge Katsis lauded the goal of narrowing the government and lead opinion's breathtaking and untenable construction of the statute. But in Judge Katsis's view, the heightened mens rea requirement that the concurrence proposed would not alter the improbable breadth of the actus reus. In other words, Judge Katsis viewed the unlawful benefit mens rea definition as necessary but not sufficient. 4. The Mandate In the wake of these opinions, Mr. Fisher and Miller moved to stay the mandate so that they could seek review in this court. The panel granted that request. We've come to the end of part one, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.